about the godly man versus the worldly man. Um, more focused on the traits um, that distinguish the two. And so first, obviously, uh, we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about the godly man. What do we need to do as men of God uh, in order to live righteous lives, to pursue righteousness, and to do what God would have us to do? And uh, we are going to be doing a deep dive into all sorts of verses across the uh, entire Bible. So get ready. Get your fingers ready. We're going to be moving pretty quickly. Um, but first, um, it is important for us to spend a lot of that focus on the godly men, but it is also important for us to step back and think about what it is to be a worldly man and what is it that we are striving not to be. Because um, it's not as simple as just saying, this is what I'm going for, it's a, this is what I want to avoid. Um, that can kind of help us keep us on a straight path rather than kind of bouncing back and forth between the two. Um, so first, um, if you guys don't mind, let's say a quick prayer to kind of open up. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for tonight. We're thankful that we get to be here um, with fellow brothers that want to pursue you, that want to pursue righteousness, and Father, that want to um, do everything in, that is within our power to be uh, pleasing servants to you and to do as you would have us to do. Uh, we pray that you be with those that um, may need you today, um, whether in uh, spiritual reasons or physical reasons, in whatever way, we pray that, that you can grant comfort as we know that only you can do. Help us now as we open up our hearts to uh, the gospel, um, all the words that you have written, um, and as we hear those words, help us to understand and to take them and carry them with us forever. Help us to always trust in you, and we thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, easy question alert. Why is it important that we stop and think about the traits of the godly man versus the traits of the worldly man? Why is it important? We already kind of touched on it a little bit, but I just kind of want to hear from you guys. Keeping our goal, keeping our focus, something that we have to work forward to because complacency... I've said it a couple of times in the James class at the back of that. Complacency should have no place in the life of a Christian. Um, that it's something that we are constantly working on, constantly striving to grow um, in. And so that's something important for us that we stop and we think about what are the traits that are given to us here in the Bible that we need to mirror in our own lives. So um, I think about... Um, uh, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 is that you are salt of the earth and lights of the earth, that you are essentially, we are responsible for bringing God and uh, encouraging, not encouraging, but reflecting God to this earth. That um, men of the world that have no idea who God is, have not pursued God, can see God through us. And I think that's why it's important that we stop and we think about these two things. Because there has to be a very distinct line between the two. We're going to talk a little bit about that later down the road. But if that line, that would have been really good on the PowerPoint to put a line up there rather than just pointing it out. But if that line grays out at all, then we are treading on very dangerous ground. So we cannot be one and the other. It has to be one or the other. So this is the verse that I want us to plant down at, at the very beginning. 
1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. We'll go ahead and read that together. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That is an incredible, incredible section. The end of it, we're not going to focus quite as much. We're going to focus more so on these first couple of verses. Because here, Paul is writing to Timothy, and Paul is offering these instructions on how to be a man of God. And Paul even calls Timothy a man of God. Now, this term is only used twice in the New Testament here and in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, when he's talking about, so the man of God may be perfect and complete. Um, But... Also, it is a term that is echoed throughout the entire gospel multiple times. And if Paul is calling Timothy a man of God, he is in great company. Because there's several men listed here that are called men of God that um, are very um, good characters that we should emulate. Characters that have um, attributes that we should pursue and try to apply into our own lives. So um, those are just a couple of the verses. We don't actually have to stop and camp out on those verses. That's just verses that actually explicitly say that, say, David is a man of God. Moses is a man of God. But that title is something that we should be pursuing, a man of God. And now if, if somebody were to write a book of the Bible about us, would they call us this? Would they call us, you, O man of God? And if not, then we've got some work to do. Um, another thought that I, it actually kind of struck me right before um, Bible class is that Paul, in, uh, as he's getting ready to um, encourage Timothy and is about to um, offer these encouragements, these instructions on what to do as a man of God, I found it interesting that Paul even called Timothy a man of God before offering the instruction. So I think that begs the question, was, was Timothy not a man of God before Paul even called him this by this title? I don't think so. I think it's safe to assume that uh, the work that Timothy had done was worthy that of being a man of God. But while all of these traits are necessary to be a man of God, um, it's something that has to be practiced and implemented Um, they're not always inherent, that they have to be learned. So what I think Paul is getting at here is just offering a reminder that you, as a man of God, let's just revisit these things. 
These are things that we need to be reminded of, things that we need to pursue, but not necessarily take to heart that um, Paul is calling anything, call, Paul is not calling Tim, Timothy anything other than a man of God. Um, so that's my goal here, is not to teach you anything new. As much as I would love to just wow Harold with some groundbreaking theological thought, if that's not going to happen. This is all going to be stuff that we have heard before, or things that we have studied before, but that is things that we have to constantly come back to, to learn and to train our brains to constantly move into this. So first... Paul encourages Timothy to flee these things. Um, for anybody who has any idea of what the context is written here, what are these things that Paul is encouraging Timothy to flee? Greed, materialism. Greed, materialism, conceit, discontentment. He just lists a lot of things, and I think we can really easily um, discuss this as something that should be fled from is sin very general, that we need to flee from sin. So that's our first trait tonight, based off of what Paul is saying here, that a godly man must be willing to flee from sin. So let's read a couple of verses, because the Bible has a lot to say in this regard. Get my Bible open up here. So first, let's open up to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter two, verse twenty-two. It's written, "So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart." And then it's written, as you can, I've just kind of put it up here because I don't want to just read every single verse, but that word "flee" is used often. Why do you think that is? Why would he use that word flee? Why would he not just say, well, just kind of stay away from it? Throughout life, you're going to be put in situations where you're going to be tempted in that manner. So in those kind of situations, what do we do? Turn around and leave. Who does that draw our mind back to? Joseph. I don't think he's just saying uh, stay away from those things. There's some things that we we walk out of the grocery store, but some things, when something's after us, we run. And that means run from these youthful passions. There's a sense of urgency here. That it's not just patiently, of, oh, I'm just going to walk away from it. It's an active, um, urgent Let's get away from this as far as we can. Um, and uh, that draws us back to like that story that we often come to whenever we think of this verse is that Joseph and Potiphar's wife, whenever uh, Potiphar's wife was seeking uh, to lay with Joseph, what, what did she do? She came after him. She grabbed a hold of him. And what did he do? He ran. He left the clothes that were on his back and he ran. That is a urgent thing. And I think that is something that we as Christians... Um, can, it can be easy to forget that. Um, that It's something not just that we should be avoiding, is that we should be fleeing. It's running as far and as hard as we can in the opposite direction. 
Um, because if, there's, if there is a verse that says this, I have not found it, but if there's a verse that encourages us to enter into sin so that we can prove that we can withstand it, I have not found that. There's not a single verse in the Bible. If there is, please tell me, but I don't think that that's what God wants us to do. I think God wants us in, to put as much distance between us, our hearts, and sin as possible. Yes, Tom. I was thinking, you know, we run up against a man, an enemy, a man who fights. So, in, in a very practical sense, um, well, actually, no, we'll, we'll come back to that in just a second. Um, but, because the contra- what is the contrast? So, if the godly man flees from sin, what does the worldly man do? Pursues sin. So, oh man, that actually didn't come up. I was, I was hoping to get something with more contrast there. But um, the worldly man will actively pursue sin. So we have so many verses here um, that talk about that. It's not as clearly linked in terms of the verbiage, but I think the concept is the same. So let's turn over to James chapter 4. It is up there, but um, if you do want to open up your Bible and turn there, we'll read from... James chapter 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friendship with the world, that is something that should not be in the life of a Christian. What does he mean by that? To be be in a friendship with the world, what does that mean? You got two two focuses, but to be a friend of the world means you are in it. When you think about your friendships, um, you are going to hopefully be spending time with them. You share a lot of the same ideals. You enjoy the same things. And our if we have this friendship with the world, it means that same thing: is that we are partaking in these things together. That we are entering into the world and enjoying. The, the pleasures that that relationship offers. And um, what does James write here that that relationship with the world is? Enmity. What does that word mean? I actually have to look this up. I always heard what I heard, oh, friendship with the world is enmity with God. I, but then I've never really stopped to think that it really, if you take that translation, it's hostility. That friendship with the world creates a hostile relationship with God. And I don't think that is a side of the uh, relationship with God that we want to be on. That if we are pursuing and actively pursuing um, the things of the world, then that is causing quite a rift in our relationship with God. That so much that we are creating a hostile environment between God and ourselves. Uh, but then there's, there's other verses here, uh, uh, more encouragement in 1 John, that we are not to love the things of the world. Um, but I, this one right here in 1 John chapter 3 was a, is a little bit more direct, that if you are partaking in, uh, and partaking in things of the world, making a practice of sin, you are of the devil. And we talk about wanting the man of God title, 
I think there's also a title that we definitely don't want. It is that if you are of the devil. And so if you make a practice of sinning, if not necessarily if you, are, if you are a sinner, because I think we can all agree that everyone in this room is a sinner, but if you are making a practice of sinning, that you are actively chasing sin, that you are of the devil. Yes? Uh, and between those two extremes of fleeing and pursuing, you know, I know sometimes you say, well, I'm not actively pursuing sin. But you think about a friendship, you know, we've all got some friends that, like, you know, maybe they rub people the wrong way a little bit, so we're always trying to defend our friends, you know, and so maybe we're not involved in all the same things we are, but we're telling other people, you know, hey, they're not so bad, and, you know, it's, uh, they've got good qualities, you know, and so maybe sometimes that's the way it is with us in the world. It's, it's not that, you know, we're pursuing that, but we're defending those things, right? And it's like, well, it's not so bad, or, you know, that's, there's kind of a gray area here, there's a middle ground, those sorts of ideas. And maybe that's where a lot of us would find ourselves more than, well, I'm just pursuing sin all the time. No, but I'm justifying sin. Mm-hmm. Maybe in myself or others. Yeah. So, open-ended question. I want us to get very practical here. It can be about anything, but what can we implement in our lives on a very practical level um, to from sins. I'll give you one example. Uh, when I was younger, I struggled a lot with the temptations of the internet and some of the stuff that comes with that. So at the encouragement of uh, a man that I respect dearly, I cut off the internet of my smartphone. How silly does that sound? Like, how smart is your phone without the internet? It's not very smart. Um, but in those kind of moments that you have to take into account that if I am not if I am partaking in these things that the Internet has to offer, not good things. If I'm partaking in that, I may not be using my phone to its full potential, but am I living my life to my full potential as a Christian? I don't think so. So things like that, very practical, drastic measures, or maybe not so drastic measures. What are some things that we can do in our lives to flee? Cut off some relationships with people. That's right. I was single for a long time before I married, and I had to cut off some relationships with some friends. You know, when, when it was clear that it wasn't healthy, healthy for me to continue in those relationships, and that's hard to do. I think in those kind of situations, kind of like back to what Reagan was saying, is like it's very easy to make justification for like, oh, I don't want to cut off the relationship because, oh, maybe I can teach them the gospel down the road. Maybe I can help them. Maybe I can save them. But if they are really causing certain temptations in your life, they are causing issues within your own spiritual relationship with God, those are things that we need to flee from, even if it is somebody that... But you can make the justification. There are certain people in our lives that do have certain redeemable qualities about themselves. Like some of the people, uh, like there was a, one of my classmates um, in optometry school. I sat next to him all four years, very open uh, acting homosexual. But he was the kindest man that I have ever had the pleasure to be able to spend time with. But obviously there's those things that you just have, you cannot budge on. So those relationships sometimes are just 
If they are causing issues for you, they have to be fleed from or fled from. What else? I think that uh, we we put too much weight on what is uh, what is expected, what is normal, all of those things. Um, you were referencing the internet on your phone, and at at the time when we we think they're drastic, but really, if you look at God's level, you know. Um, Try to try to look at it from his level, and, and what he, uh, you know, he wants your good always, and and we get in our, our our bubble and we think this is all there is, you know, this is eating at me so much, but uh, but if we if we step back, you know, what really are we are we giving up? Actually, we're not giving anything up. We're we're embracing something else. Um, I think that if we can look at it in a different perspective, it helps. Because I, I, I think about it in the, whenever I made that change in my life, it did feel very drastic. Um, but when I look back on it now, I would not change it. Um, I would not have it any other way because that drastic action, um, which now looking back on it, it's like it really wasn't that big of a deal. That was just me as a, a teenager thinking that, oh, this is a big deal. But now I'm like, that was so important um, that if we can look at it with a different perspective, more so than making a drastic change in our lives, is making a good turn in our lives, um, that we're making a turn for the right. Anything else that comes to mind? Well, let's, let's keep moving on. Because uh, we got plenty of other stuff in this uh, particular chapter that Paul encourages Timothy, as a man of God, he must pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. These are all very good things, very important things that a Christian needs to pursue. Um, and, and putting it in a different way, I think that the godly man is one who maintains good virtues and upholds good morals, which is just a very fancy way of saying a man who obeys God. Um, somebody who um, pursues God and wants to emulate these things in their lives. And I found this really interesting. When I was looking for a verse, um, I, what I wanted to do was just kind of take all of the stuff from here and find something else in the Bible to reinforce that point. And surprisingly, in the book of Ezekiel, I found this particular uh, section that we'll read here. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountain or lift up his eyes to the idols, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, 
walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous. I think as far as a checklist goes, this is as good as we'll, as we'll ever get. So what I wanted to do in addition to that is let's find other verses in the Bible that reinforce each point that was just spoken of there in the book of Ezekiel. So first, to be righteous, a godly man does not eat upon the mountains or worship idols. So what does that mean for us today as Christians? We're allowed to eat on mountains. I'm not saying that we're, we can't. We're supposed to eat at sea level. We're supposed to eat at sea level. Okay. Was that some kind of pagan ritual or something? It was more of a focus on idolatry. It, uh, it was a, um, and I'm sure there's a lot more to it. I didn't get that deep into it. But um, it's just a um, pagan um, ritual in regards to the very overall umbrella of idolatry. And so... Um, yeah, eating on high places. Um, so, what does the Bible have to say about Christians and even modern-day Christians who don't we don't bow down to um, we don't bow down to uh, metal uh, figures, idols, or anything like that? But what does the Bible say? So, let's first turn to First Corinthians ten fourteen. Very short verse. But here it is said, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There's that word again. Flee from idolatry. So like I said, we, we're not bowing down to a Baal image here in this church building, but what are the things, the idolatries that we as Christians need to flee from? Anything we put in front of God, before God. Anything. Anything. Anything that takes priority over our relationship with God. And twice in the New Testament called covetousness, idolatry. Mm-hmm. Coveting other things. Other things are taking that place over our relationship with God. <clears throat> really parallels uh, materialism. Material things, the things of this world over our relationship with God is idolatry. And so uh, all of the verses here that are in the yellow, those are not necessarily because they're better than the other verse. It's just that I didn't want to read through every single verse that I have lifted up here. But if it's something that you guys are interested in, um, please uh, flip over there. And if you have any questions, please let me know. So we'll move to the next one. This next one was a little uncomfortable. And the, the wording of uh, what it was written in Ezekiel is a little bit more complicated, but what does it boil down to? Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is that that is not something that is pursuing righteousness or godliness if we are partaking in sexual 
the morality. So we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just a couple verses over from where we just were. Verses 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, excuse me, from you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Do not oppress. Proverbs 19, verse 17. I think I wrote that down wrong, but I guess it still kind of falls under. Who is, who is, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Do not oppress. I looked up the definition of the word oppress. It's just really a long, extended um, mistreatment of an individual. So a Christian in avoiding oppression, that is something that we should never do because we as Christians understand that we are sinners and that there is nobody beneath us any more than us. So we have no grounds to oppress anybody. And so for us to pursue righteousness, we should not be doing um, any kind of oppression. But what um, he write, wrote here is that, but restores to the debtor his pledge. It's more so than just not oppressing, but uplifting someone else. Commits no robbery. I think that speaks for itself. Do not take what is not yours. Um, we can turn over to Proverbs 10, verse 2. And I realize that I'm flying through all of this. I just There's a lot, of, lot to unpack here. And, uh, so if anybody has any questions or comments, please stop me, interrupt me. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep plowing through. I will keep talking. All right. Proverbs chapter, two, or chapter 10, verse 2. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Robbery is taking from someone else what is theirs to take as yourself, to take for yourself. So I think any kind of riches that we may gain from robbery, what does the proverb say here is that does not profit. So that Christians and the godly man should commit no robbery. I think now uh, we're approaching tax day, and I think that's the, the uh, if anyone is tempted to do such a thing, it is, it is there at your computer. That's uh, a very practical thing. When we think about robbery, uh, we think of, oh, give me all your money, when it doesn't have to be just that. It can be taking something that is not yours, not necessarily through violent means. It can be through sneaky means. Um, so there are, there are lots of ways that we as Christians can commit robbery within the law. Well, I guess that, that's not necessarily within the law, but I think you understand what I'm trying to get at there. 
So gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment. Let's turn to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 11. Well, let's read verse 10. And the crowds asked him, him being who? John the Baptist. The crowd asked John the Baptist, What then shall we do? And he answered, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who is none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. I think this is a very applicable thing for us as Christians. And, uh, because we, we live here in the United States. We talk about how blessed we are to live here in the United States. But even here in the United States where we are so prosperous, we are so blessed, there are so many people in this world that are struggling financially. They can't put food on the table. They can't provide for themselves. And that we as, the, as Christians should be able to help those, to be able to uplift those and to encourage and help those who are struggling. So I thought that was an interesting thing. That, I thought, um, that was listed here, that we as Christians can help those who are struggling using what we have as a blessing rather than just taking more and more for ourselves. So next, does not lend at interest or take any profit. And uh, translation, does not love money. Um, in my uh, young man's, uh, whatever the, the term was for the, uh, the young man's opinion or uh, perspective um, of this, I wanted to uh, take it another step further and went for a child. I, I asked my two nephews who are um, eight years old and five years old, what do they believe the difference between a godly man and a worldly man was? And do you know what the only, well, not the only thing, but the main thing that they came back to? Money. The biggest difference between a godly man and a worldly man is the love of money. My, uh, the five-year-old, um, my sister-in-law sent me a video, and he just goes, it's a sad life to love money. It's kind of, and that was so interesting. Here's a five-year-old child who doesn't really even truly understand what money is, but he understands that that, that is a very clear distinction between the godly man and the worldly man is the love of money. And there's plenty of verses throughout the Bible that reinforce that concept. Let's turn over uh, to 1 Timothy, um, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The pursuit of money, the pursuit of materialism, has caused many to fall away from the faith. It doesn't get any more clear than that. I don't think Paul is saying here that money is a bad thing. Because it provides food, it provides comfort, it provides protection. But it become, does it, when does money become an idol? 
when does money become the only thing that we are pursuing over God? Does withhold, uh, the, the righteous man does not withhold, excuse me, does withhold from injustice and provides true justice. Uh, there's two verses here that I want us to uh, look at. Psalms 106. Psalm 106, verse 3. Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. And then in Proverbs chapter 21, Twenty-one verse three. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So I want us to sit here for just a second. I so we've been studying the book of James um, in the back, and there's a lot of talk in that book about the way that the rich people treated the poor people. Now, justice does not always come down to financial means and separation between whether or not you have or you have not. But there, that Christians, I mean, it ultimately comes back to what we were just talking about with uh, the Christian does not oppress, but rather that the Christian understands, and I'm trying to figure out exactly how I want to word this, but that the Christian understands that we are all on the same playing field, that treatment of a person is not dictated by what they have, who they are, what they look like, but that everyone deserves love, deserves justice, deserves peace, and that we as Christians should do everything within our power to help them, to help those that are struggling and those that are... um, struggling in that way, trying to think of a different word to say that. But um, I think that's really important because throughout the Bible, this is obviously something that is very important to God um, because in the book of James, uh, God talks about um, visiting the widows and their affliction and the orphans. Um, And if you go back to the Old Testament, throughout the prophets, that was one of the main things that the prophets were condemning Israel for was their poor treatment of people that were in a lower social class. So even in the Old Testament, that's something that God was getting on to his people about. That how is that can that still be something that we do today? Yeah. In what way? Whenever we show partiality, and so it might be I mean James talked about that, right? You know, there's no partiality with God. Um, you know, what family you were born into, or race, or whatever the case might be. But I think, you know, obviously racism and sexism and those sorts of things. But I think sometimes we can be tempted to show partiality with relationships, right? So, because somebody's my friend, I'm going to withhold justice that I would have for somebody else, right? Like, whose side are you on? Well, I'm on the side of what's right. I'm on the side of truth, you know? And and so I'm not going to show partiality and be unjust just because I have a relationship with someone. I'm I'm still...
still going to do what's right. Um, and if they're in the wrong, then I'm going to tell them that, even though they're my friends, I guess. I mean, that's what the first thing that comes to my mind. Any other thoughts? So lastly, the man who is righteous walks in my statutes and keeps my rules. That's what it all boils down to. That we as Christians are to obey the word of God. To be righteous, we keep his word. We keep his rules and that should be reflected in our lives so that when people look at us, they see us as different. They see us as righteous and you know, sometimes in the eyes of the world, that may not be the view of righteous, but we know that the Word of God is all that matters, and that is all that we should be focused on as a righteous man and as a godly man. Yes, Mike? Uh, how do we maintain this? And a man who works with his hands, if he quits working with his hands, they become soft and he can't do his job. And the Bible speaks of the athlete, the runner. Quit running, your lungs don't work right. And so we have to study, increase our faith, and produce fruit to continue in that. And it just kind of multiplies itself. That's actually a wonderful uh, transition into what I wanted to talk about next was we as Christians are, or as godly men, are to fight the good. That is something that we cannot just stop doing. That is something that we have to maintain. So what does that mean to fight the good fight? Is Firstly, as all, what we've talked about is that you have to maintain a godly character. You can't be fighting the good fight if you're not maintaining a godly character because if you are not maintaining a god, godly character, you're on the wrong side of the fight. But second, um, and we won't uh, talk too much about this, but just reject, rejecting false doctrine and false teaching is that there is... Um, what Paul in this book in the first Timothy is talking about, um, he is uh, encouraging Timothy, who's living in Ephesus at the time, um, and, which is a, was a large cultural hub um, for paganism. That the, the temple of Diana or uh, Artemis was there, which was a very, very um, prominent uh, pagan institution. So you can only imagine that. Paul, in encouraging Timothy to fight the good fight as a man of God, a lot of that will in, require standing up for the Word of God and rejecting false doctrine and um, anything that goes against the Word of God. But ultimately, that to fight that good fight, it, we're going to get tired. We're going to get exhausted. We're going to get worn down. But we have to persevere. And the Bible is not short on any verses that encourage us about that. So let's first go to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. 
The godly man must be willing to stand up even in the midst of adversity. When life is getting rough and that fighting the good fight is not drawing an image of uh, skipping through a field of daisies, it's, it's going to be tough. That, but it is a good fight. It is not just fighting the fight, but it is fighting the good fight that is worth every pain, every ounce of suffering that we as Christians can endure to ultimately reach heaven where we get to worship God and to be able to be in the presence of God and push through those trials and those tribulations. I thought this was a good thought. Whenever I just went to Google and I typed in godly man versus the worldly man, um, and somebody kind of brought up that um, it was this random blog on the Internet. But the godly man is the only one who can take comfort in this statement. Jesus said, do not lose heart or take heart, for I have overcome the world. The godly man can take comfort in Jesus' word that Jesus has overcome the world, that the worldly man bears no strength against us whenever we have God and Jesus interceding for us. So lastly, um, that, that's the last slide. I wanted to go back to, um, at the very beginning, whenever I was talking about this line here, the godly man versus the worldly man. And it drew me back to James chapter 1, verse 27, where um, it's written, uh, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If we put this mental picture of a a block or a, a wall between the godly man and the worldly man, any time we allow ourselves to cross that wall, that wall breaks down. And when that wall breaks down, the worldly man starts to bleed over into the godly man. And here James is encouraging us that there should be a complete degree of separation between the two, that we as godly men must be completely unstained from the world. I uh, was hoping uh, Keith would be here, but because uh, he would understand this. For those of you who don't know, I'm an optometrist, which is an eye doctor. And what we see all the time, women will use glitter in their makeup around their eyes. It's interesting, but uh, because they're always coming in saying, oh, my eyes are so dry. And then whenever I look in the slit lamp, I look at their tear film, and there's just glitter all the way through their tear film. And I'm like, well, there's your problem. And I'll talk to them about that because it's a, it's a really fine line you have to so like I'm not, I'm not telling you to stop wearing makeup. I'm just saying just don't put it as close to your eye as you are because sometimes they will like get actually up underneath their eyelid. And it will, no matter what, it will always make it into the eye. So that illustration makes sense in my head. I hope it does for you. But is that if that makeup is getting close to the eye, it's going to get into the eye. If we, as godly men, are allowing anything of the world into our lives, that is, no matter how we feel, how strong we feel, how diligent we think we're being and making sure that that's not bleeding over, it will bleed over eventually. 
So that, that's really it. Um, I know we just kind of threw through a lot, but whenever I get the, whenever I sign up for the traits of a godly man, I can't just talk about one. I have to talk about all of them. And there's a lot, a lot of traits that we should be pursuing, a lot of things that we should be implementing in our lives as Christians and hope that we can pursue righteousness and ultimately our lives can be pleasing to God. Are there any last thoughts, questions, arguments? I thought it was interesting you took a list from Ezekiel 18, which is a chapter all about personal accountability, right? No longer use this proverb, uh, the father's beat and sour grapes and the children's teeth were set on edge, right? So you're not, you're not bearing the responsibility for what your parents did. And so you've got these traits right in the midst of him explaining uh, if a righteous man is righteous, then God's good with him. But then if he has an unrighteous son, then uh, God's not going to be pleased with him. But if the unrighteous son has a godly son, well, then God is going to be pleased with him. It's you as an individual. And, um, you know, my father is a godly man, um, so I've had a great example. But the only way I'm going to be a godly man is if I choose to be, if I choose to put on this character. If I had not had a godly father, then it's still on me to choose to be a godly man myself. So, um, you know, we live, many of us have lived a very privileged life in that sense of I'm around godly people and I see godly people and I'm in a, a church full of godly people, but I still have to make the choice to be a godly man myself and to live that every day. All these things don't happen on accident, right? They don't just happen. They take thought. They take intention. They take diligence in making sure that you are actually doing what you are, um, you are actually actively doing what you are expecting, of what you would expect of a Christian that you yourself are doing. So that, that's really, um, and I, I don't think that, um, I don't hope that nobody uh, takes any, um, discouragement from this because there are a lot of things up here that I'm not that great at. There's not a single thing up here that I do not want to be better at. I want to be better at that, and that is what is important as the godly man is that we are constantly pushing and growing because, like I said at the beginning class, complacency should have no place in the Christian life. Everything on that list right there is, is putting others first. God ultimately, and then every single thing else on there is none of it selfish. Come from places and kind of start falling back on what you want, lose sight of what's important. Have any last thoughts? Any any of the elders want to say anything? I didn't ask any of the elders to make any comments um, at the beginning of class, but. A couple of thoughts I'll share with you. One, on the plea, I thought about Romans, I think it's 13, the last verse. Make no provision for the flesh, which is very close to what you were saying about taking these drastic actions. And if we do make provisions, we're likely to fall. Because that's something about the attitude anyway. Jutting down, feeling good about ourselves, I think the list probably, like you said, all of us can look up there and think, wow, I've worked in this area. But if we are feeling good about ourselves, 
1 Corinthians 10, 12, is it? Take heed lest you fall. And I think that's probably what you were making the point. Kind of that Timothy's a good man, but Paul still saw the need to tell him, take heed. And then I, I pointed out that this would go with your James passage, that if you look just above that, his message is, be doers of the word, not hearers only. And that's where we have our big problem. Uh, you know, Reagan's preached on immodesty, I've preached on immodesty. Look at the Facebook page, people's face page, Instagram, and so forth. I'm not on either, but I know it's there. But there's all kinds. They can just even walk in the church building sometimes, and you're forced to think, turn your eyes or whatever. Uh, I got a friend one day that said, I need high bleach. You know, he's, so he said, I need high bleach. And I think that's, you know, making sure we're doers of the word. And in the passage that you cited in James, I think that's what you were doing.
being intentional with our mindset, thinking that this might happen down the road. Let's make this decision now that the worldly man will not bleed over into the godly man. Thank you guys very much for being here.